Good morning, ECC. It is good to see you all. I am genuinely grateful and blessed for the privilege to be with you this morning, like we said, through many dangers, toils, and snares. But glad to just finally be here with my family. Um, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, and we are going to be spending some time in verses 9 to 21. As you're turning there, let me just call your attention and remind you about the members meeting happening today at 6 p.m. in Main Hall 2. That's today, 6 p.m., Main Hall 2. If you're a member, please do uh, make some time um, to come for that. It's going to be really important. We're going to be looking through some elder candidates. We're also be going to looking at the budget. We're going to be looking at the budget. Um, and we're going to be binding and loosing, bringing members in and seeing them out um, together with very important updates that we as a church need to be aware of moving forward. So let me just encourage you today at 6 p.m., uh, Main Hall 2, if you could please come for that. Romans chapter 12 from verse 9. And we're going to be leading all the way to 21. So just to kind of bring you up to speed, this month of January, we've been talking about basics of the Christian faith. Things that we will do until God calls us home or until he returns. So it's loosely based off, actually not loosely, it's based off Acts chapter 2 from verse 42 down to 47, in which the church, after the church has just been born in Acts chapter 2, they commit themselves to prayer, to the word, to evangelism, and to fellowship. And that's what we've been talking about. We talked about prayer, we talked about the primacy of the word, we talked about evangelism, JP did a fantastic job of that. And today we are going to be talking about fellowship, church life in particular. What is it that God envisioned when he created the church? How was it that he designed us to live with each other? What attitudes, what actions were we supposed to embody and live out? I don't know if you've heard the story of the child aged around seven years old, maybe six years old, and as is typical of children around that age, when you call them to the dinner table, they'll come, take one spoon, run around, go look for something. Then come back, eat another spoon, run around and go look for something. And this boy's father, we'll call him Johnny, was getting very irritated with him. So he says, Johnny, sit down. He's like, okay. One spoon, runs around, then comes back. And because his father wants him to sit and learn how to eat like a normal human being, looks at him and says, Johnny, sit down, eat your food. And Johnny knows when his father is serious, so he sits down, looks at his father, takes one spoon, looks at his father again and says, Dad, eats another spoon, and his dad says, yes, you know, yes, right now I'm sitting down, but in my heart, I'm standing up. Right action, wrong attitude. Is that how God envisioned this? That we do all the right things, but have the wrong heart, or have a right heart, and we don't do anything. What I'm hoping we see from Romans chapter 12, verse 9 to 21, is that church life, as God envisioned it, the life that his redeemed saints live, especially in the local church, is a life that is marked by genuine love. Church life is a life that is marked by genuine love in the church and outside the church. More specifically, Church life is a life that is marked by genuine love in our attitudes, in our actions, 
and even with our adversaries, right? So in the whole book of Romans, Romans is this beautiful book, sometimes called the Cathedral of the New Testament. And Paul spends 11 chapters explaining basically the gospel, God's plan to save sinners. Or put differently, in the book of Romans, God explains how a just God is justly justifying unjust sinners through his son, Jesus Christ. He explains that for 11 chapters, and from the 12th chapter, he now says, in view of that, this then is how we live a life of worship, how we live a life of service unto God and to each other. And that's where we find ourselves located in Romans chapter 12, from verse 9 to 21. So I will read through it, and we will pray, and as, as we are reading, what I hope you see is those three mental handles, that church life is a life of genuine love, marked by love in our attitude, love in our actions, and even love for our, our adversaries. Romans chapter 12 from verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is active and sharper than a double-edged sword, that is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Would you please help me step out of your way? Would you speak to me and speak through me to the end that our lives may be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? Forbid it, Lord, that anyone except you should get glory at this time. And so, Lord, what you do not have, please give us through your word. What we do not know, please teach us through your word. And what we are not, please make us through your word. We pray these things for your glory and our joy, believing and trusting in Jesus' name. Amen. Love in attitude, love in action, love for adversaries. Church life is a life of genuine love marked by those three. So let's just dive right in. Love in attitude. Genuine love starts from the inside out. 
It starts from our deepest thoughts and attitudes about each other, which are fully known before the Lord. So if our actions toward each other are going to be actions of genuine love, then our attitudes and thoughts should be attitudes and thoughts of genuine love. It has to start from the inside out. In this text, as part of the practical application of how we live in view of what God has done for us in Christ, it starts out in verse 9 saying, let love be genuine, which is like the heading of everything else you're going to read in the rest of that chapter. Let love be genuine. Note, Paul doesn't say you should have love. He already assumes that there is love that the church has for each other. He's now saying let that love that you already have, let it be genuine. Sincerely pursue and seek each other's highest good in Christ because that is what genuine love is. And so from that title, he makes it clear the goal here is love the goal here is sincere or genuine love for all, but particularly for the household of saints. Which is why the great command is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, if you and I are being honest, we read that and we go, really God? When you say all, you mean like all our neighbors? Surely there has to be some exception clause or we lower the standard because that's just impossible. To which the Bible would agree and say, yes, it is impossible to love like that if we are trying to do it on our own. If we are trying to do it by our own strength, we will flop 100% of the time. So what is it that enables us to love genuinely? 1 John chapter 4 from verse 9 all the way to 12, gives us that answer. This and many parts of the Bible. Here's what it says. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Pause. So that we might live through him. Why? Because we were dead in our trespasses and transgressions. Ephesians 2 would say, Physically alive, spiritually dead. The objects of God's wrath. Verse 10, in this love, not rather in this is love, I beg your pardon, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What is a propitiation? It is a wrath-bearing, wrath-removing sacrifice. A propitiation or propitiation is what Jesus was. He was the perfect, spotless, sinless lamb of God who lived a perfect life. And on that cross, after being flogged and beaten, bleeding and dying, was taking upon himself the wages of sin, which is death, which belonged to the people who had introduced sin and death into the world, human beings. He was standing in their place, condemned in our place he stood, died, rose three days later, and now offers us the kind of life he has, which is eternal life. So the only life he can give is eternal life. And we live through him because he took away, he bore the wrath and took away the wrath of God so that for those who are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. And it is because Jesus did this that in verse 11, the Apostle John, sometimes called the Apostle of Love, says this. 
Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is completed or perfected in us. Did you catch it? The idea is, in view of what God through his son Jesus Christ has done for us and now filled us with his spirit, now we can love genuinely. Perfectly? No. Completely? Truly? Sincerely? Yes. And genuine love now seeks the highest good of all, but particularly those who are in the same local church as us, particularly the saints. But it's not just love that should be genuine. It's love that's intense. Look at verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. To abhor means to hate exceedingly. It's a very strong word. To hate exceedingly that which is evil. Because love from God, love that is holy and pure, cannot coexist with evil. Light cannot coexist with darkness. God's love is like that. But it's not only that we should be repulsed by and reject that which is evil, because where true love is, evil is not tolerated or covered up. It is reviled. Not only do we hate that and run away from something, we cling, we hold fast to that which is good. And that phrase, hold fast, might remind you of Genesis chapter 2. For this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and hold fast or cleave or cling to his wife. That is the kind of intimacy and passion God wants us to have with that which is good. Revile that which is evil, passionately hate that which is evil, and passionately pursue that which is good. And what is good? Whatever God says in his word is good. He defines good. Or as earlier verses in chapter 12 say, his good and acceptable and perfect will. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. This love is genuine, it's intense, but it's also affectionate. It's not just seeking the highest good, running away from evil, running toward good. No, it's warm. Look at verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. That the attitude, the outlook that Christians have toward each other, especially Christians who are members of the same church, is one of brotherly affection. It's familial language. There's a commitment and depth to who we are to each other. In fact, you and I, as believers in Christ, you and I, as members of the same local church, have more in common with each other than we do with our natural brothers and sisters who don't know Christ. We have God, His Spirit, eternity, the faith, all of that in common, God at work in both our hearts. Now, that doesn't mean we dismiss our natural family, but it means this spiritual family is an actual, real, eternal family that we have brotherly affection and patience with and for. Another attitude that should mark this genuine love is it rejoices in hope. It's always rejoicing in hope. In, in, verse, beg your pardon, in verse 12, it says rejoice in hope. When the Bible uses that phrase of hope, it's usually pointing, in fact, almost always pointing 
to the return of Christ. This is our blessed hope, that Christ is coming back for not just persons, but he's coming back for our people. That when he comes back, he will make all things new. No more discord, no more strife, no more war, no more pain, a perfected world. So in this world, we can rejoice in view of what we have coming to us. That hope produces joy. In fact, where there is no hope, joy kind of just evaporates. But Paul says, if we are going to have genuine love, that love should look forward to the one who's coming back for us, the one who loved us. And so we look at each other as those who will someday be caught up with him and live forever with him and in him. Our beautiful hope is an eternal hope. In fact, that's what Hebrews 10, the verses we just read says, not neglect meeting with one another, spur one another on toward love. All the more as we see the day returning, because in view of that hope, we hold hands and say, let's love one another. I'm going to help you get safely home. Help me get safely home. And lastly, and most importantly, genuine love is marked by an attitude of humility. Three times in this one chapter, Paul makes the same point about that. Here's Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to you, to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Number one, do not think too highly. Number two, do not be haughty. Number three, never be wise in your own sight. Do you see? And Paul is echoing what the Bible says about pride in general. The Bible has horrible things to say about pride. In Proverbs chapter 6, of the things God detests, first on the list, haughty eyes. Because Paul knows nothing destroys a person or a person's relationship with God or a person's relationship with others when you and I think we are better than others, more spiritual than others, smarter than others. That attitude sows deep resentment and deep discord in a community. And that attitude cannot coexist with a community whose love is meant to be genuine and growing in genuineness. That's why James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this is where genuine love starts, in attitudes that are shaped by God's word and by God's spirit, attitudes of love toward each other. In 1915, in the middle of World War I. World War I was a pathetic war. It was just a war of attrition. It's like people dig a ditch on this side, others have dug a ditch on this side, they get up, shoot these other guys for a little while, a few of them die, they crawl back into their ditch. These guys come up, shoot these other guys for a little while, they come up, shoot these other guys, a few die, they crawl back into their ditches, then they start throwing bombs and artillery at each other from their ditches, and people would stay there for months, sometimes even a year, in the same ditch because of this war. It was a horrible, painful, pathetic war of attrition. But right around 23rd of December, the guns started going silent. 24th December, the guns were completely silent. And the British troops were on one side, and the German troops were on one side. And from the German side, the story goes, someone started singing, Stille Nacht, Heilige Nacht, 
And on the other side, the British guys responded, All is calm, all is bright. Small Paul. Then they all started singing, one in German, one in English. Then they slowly crawled out of their ditches, looked at each other, saw okay, and then came together. And there are actual pictures of them talking, giving each other sweets, sharing alcohol because it was freezing in the dead of winter. There are even pictures of them playing football. By football, I mean soccer. You know where you use your foot to move the ball? That football. <laughs> and it was awesome. It lasted from the 24th to the 25th, all the way until the 28th sometimes. And then right around the 29th, they went back slowly into their ditches and started shooting each other again. <laughs> there was nothing genuine about their attitude toward each other. They still thought the guys on the other side are the scum of the earth. They still thought those guys are not as good as us, so we should kill them. They had a temporary niceness, but not an internal change. And so we have to ask ourselves, is that what God wanted for us? Because it's very easy to be externally nice and internally hateful. It's very easy to be externally engaged and internally apathetic. Where we're kind of like, yeah, I know he's a member of the church. I really just don't want to hang out with anyone. I'm going home. The attitude that the Lord wants me, wants us to have toward each other, is an attitude that says, that is my sister in Christ. That is my brother in Christ. I will have a warm affection toward them. The attitude I should have is one that is intense, that runs away from evil, especially the evil within me. And maybe today is the day that you and I need to pray the prayer of Psalm 139, 23, 24, where I don't even know how evil I am, O Lord. So search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Maybe you're not that guy. Maybe you're the person who knows, oh, I know the junk in my heart. I know my love is not genuine. I need the Lord to help me run away from that. And today may be the day where you need to pray, where I need to pray a prayer of intensity. Lord, help me hate that evil in my heart and cling on to the good of loving my brothers and sisters in the faith. Maybe today is the day we not only need to pray for these things, but resolve. Resolve to just intentionally pursue affectionate love with fellow members of EZC. Because thoughts and attitudes are also shaped by resolve. If I resolve to do something, my emotions will eventually catch up. And if it is a resolve to do what God has commanded, he himself will bless that obedience. I had an older pastor say that the church is really the social center of a believer's life. And I've come to see he's, he's right. Because the thoughts and attitudes and feelings I have about Christ, about church, about evangelism, about the things of God, only fellow believers share that. They get me socially in a deep level, not just mentally or emotionally, but spiritually especially as members of the same church. So as members of the same church, you and I would be able to understand why JP leaving is sad. But you and I would also be able to understand why that's a good thing for India. Amen? These are the attitudes that should make our church life tick. The goal is love, genuine love. Love that loves all, but especially those in the household of faith. 
But it's not enough for love just to be in attitudes. Love needs to be in action. Love is a verb. It acts in the interests of God's highest glory for the good of fellow church members. In fact, 1 John would say, let us not only love in words, but in deeds. And so right here in Romans chapter 12, we see Paul gave a bunch of quick fire commands. Things to do, not just attitudes to have, not just intensity, not just joy, not just affection, but things we must do. Here's what he says in verse 11. That we are to outdo, actually it's verse 10, the second part of verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor. Usually one-upping someone, like you have a story and someone one-ups your story or you have something good, someone is better, that's usually a bad thing. But where showing honor is concerned, one-upping someone is a good thing. That they show honor and the believer wants to one-up that, show you more honor and show you more honor. And that means that as Christians, especially in the same church, we are looking to recognize, praise, celebrate, help others to show honor to them. But not only do we show honor to them, verse 11, gives three commands sandwiched as one. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. In other words, be diligent that we are not to grow lazy in our service of the Lord and of each other. That we should intentionally focus and desire to do that. That we should be fervent in spirit. It carries this idea of burning in our spirits by the Holy Spirit. Like we've been set on fire in our inner being by God. It is a deep commitment to the Lord. And then he ends in an almost anticlimactic way by saying, serve the Lord. And that sounds like an anticlimax, but it's quite the opposite. That all this fervor and zeal and diligence to serve the Lord is based on chapter 12, verse 2. I mean, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship, or this is your rational service. This is how you serve the Lord, with our whole bodies given to him, everything we are, everything we have, that zeal, those actions are to mark us. The other thing that should mark us is we are to be patient in tribulation. The nature of tribulation in a Genesis chapter 3 world is there's no way around it. Tribulation or affliction is like a tunnel. You don't go around it, you just go through it. Jesus said in John 16:33, in this world you will have tribulation. You'll have many tribulations. But take heart. I have overcome the world. We are to be patient in that tribulation. Slowly put one foot in front of the other as we make our way home. But what helps us be patient in tribulation is when we are constant in prayer. In fact, directly translated is to be diligent and persistent in prayer. You know, I like that verse where it says be constant or diligent in prayer. is because it's almost like Paul presupposes that prayer doesn't come naturally. So we need to be diligent, intentional about prayer. Right? That was true in the first century and true in the 21st century. It then says in verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and show hospitality. Now that word contribute to the needs of the saints, that's basic needs. Food, shelter, water. It's not my preferred PS2. It's actually things I need to stay alive on this planet. 
And Paul is saying we should contribute or better yet, participate in that. That as we see our siblings missing those three things, we seek to clothe them, feed them, shelter them. And we should show hospitality. In fact, it doesn't just say we show hospitality. It says we seek to show hospitality. Pursue ways. Look for excuses to show hospitality. It's an active action verb that we are intentional about this. At the time Paul was writing this, there were no motels or hotels. So if a traveler, especially a Christian traveler, was going through a town or a city, showing hospitality to them meant opening your door to them and letting them spend the night with you. That, that concept seemed foreign to me until a time when I went to do a conference in South Sudan, in a very rural, rural part of South Sudan, a pastor's conference, and something like 1,000 pastors showed up. But they kind of started trickling a day before, trickling in a day or two before the actual conference. And I asked a Kenyan pastor in that, who organized that conference and who lives and works in South Sudan, hey, where are these guys coming from? And he casually told me, yeah, some of them have walked two or three days to get here. I was like, excuse me? So what happens at night? Where do they go? And he said, yeah, they go up to someone's house and say, hey, I'm going to that town for this conference. Do you mind if I spend the night with you? My Nairobian city brain was like, there's no way. But he explained to me, it's not just random. What they do is contact different churches along the way to that conference and different Christian homes and ask them, hey, if you could give this guy a roof over his head and some water, we'd appreciate it. So they knew who the Christians are in each town. They knew who the churches and the pastors are in each town. And when they'd get to that town, they'd look for them and literally open their doors. This is the attitude God is asking us to have, asking his church to have, that we show, we look for excuses to be hospitable to one another. It then says, rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who are weeping. Now, you'd almost expect it to be the other way around. Weep with those who are weeping and rejoice with those who are rejoicing, but that's not what it says. I suspect the reason that's there is because it's, much easier to weep with someone who's lost everything. It's much easier to weep with someone who's lost a loved one, lost a limb, lost their health. We can understand that pain and enter into that pain. It's a lot harder to rejoice with someone who got the thing you had been praying for and didn't get. It's a lot harder to rejoice with someone who not only got the thing you had wanted and wished for, but you are intentionally passed over and they got it. And we are to rejoice with that person. Why? Because they're our sibling. And we are happy for them. And we trust God. He'll look at us and look out for us in his own time. But he blessed my sister. He blessed my brother. I will rejoice with them. And the opposite is true. We weep with those who weep. We enter their pain, and we don't let them carry it alone. This is what Paul is commanding the church, really the Holy Spirit through Paul is commanding the church to do. He then says, live harmoniously with one another. Live in harmony with one another, verse 16 says. The idea behind living in harmony with one another is not uniformity, but it's unity. It does not mean we all think the same, say the same, act the same, are the same. No, 
There are going to be natural and spiritual differences among us. There should be. And that's what makes harmony beautiful. Earlier today, when we were being led by the music team, they were not all singing the same voice. Some were singing tenor, some were singing bass, some were singing soprano. They were singing different things, but they were on the same page of which song we are singing, why we are singing it, and why it matters to do that. So what we beheld was beautiful harmony that helped us sing. Do you see? So when he says we live in harmony with one another, he's saying don't use your natural and spiritual differences as occasion for a fight. Instead, use those natural differences, whether it's race or gender, nationality, ethnicity, use those differences to come together and be a beautiful, harmonious unit, an echo chamber of God's praise every time we sing, every time we read the word, every time we live in community. The last thing he says is be humble. Verse 16 from the second part, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Paul knows the fastest way to destroy a community is with ego. Fastest way to destroy a community. Like we said earlier, is when I think I'm better than someone. I think I'm smarter than someone. I think I'm more worthy than someone. That creates deep resentment. And he says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, which means two things. Number one, we associate with those who are at a lower socioeconomic level than us, but B, we give ourselves to lowly, menial tasks, the kind of tasks where there's no microphone or camera for, the kind of tasks no one will see. Paul says that, that is what should mark this community more than anything else. In fact, Scripture says, humble thyself in the sight of the Lord, and in due time, the Lord will raise you. Why we don't want to be marked by pride and ego is because Scripture says God opposes the proud. Think about that. If we are marked by pride, we just picked opposition with an omnipotent enemy. The chances of winning against him are zero. It's better if I, if we, humble ourselves. When... My dad was around seven years old. He witnessed the church do something incredible for his grandmother, for my grandmother, for his mother. What happened is my grandmother was the last of four wives. She was the youngest, she was the smartest, she was the prettiest, and she was the proudest about it. So when her husband, an older gentleman called Okoyo, died, the other three women told her, see ya, go away. They disinherited her from her home. Culturally, she was to be inherited by his brother. So she was inherited by a guy called Oguta. Not a bad guy. But he didn't have any real responsibilities to care necessarily for her. And he had other children with her. So in the height of her poverty, because now she was a widow, she was a foreigner, she had been kicked out of where she originally lived, she was poor, she goes over to this new place, and approaches the church. The Lord saved her wonderfully and miraculously. So she approaches the church and says, could you please help me with a small patch of land just to grow some food for me to survive and feed my children? I deeply appreciate it. Before she could finish talking, the pastor told her, wait, because I think the Lord has been laying on our hearts 
the need to give this plot of land to someone. So they went and had a conversation as a church, and they gave her that plot of land. They called the whole church together, and they built for her the house, and gave her the seed money to start a business. Seed money that put my parents, rather my dad, and his siblings through school. The church in the rural part of Kenya is the reason I'm standing here. This is what the church does. This is what genuine love looks like. This is what it means when they contribute to the needs of fellow believers. Please note, the hero in that story was not one pastor or one church member. It was the whole church. The whole church jumped in on it. And here's why that's important. If someone approaches you or approaches me and says, hey, I need money for X, Y, and Z, our natural instinct is, yeah, take my whole wallet. In fact, yeah, have the clothes off my back. Yeah, live in my house. You can have my bed. I live in the basement. Well, maybe not. But come. That's our natural instinct. But what we do when we do that is we deny the whole church the opportunity to bless that brother and bless that sister. The whole church wants to carry that burden. This church has a fantastic benevolence ministry. So when there is need, we should go to them and say, we have a sibling who's in need. Can we come around him and help him? Can we come around her and help him? And they will more than happily pick that up. Rather than me supplying individually to one, we all jump in on it through the church. Does that make sense? This is what it means to seek to show hospitality, to pursue excuses, to show hospitality. And by the way, I am presently, my family and I, the recipient of such hospitality at the house of Phil and Julie Fisher. We are fresh off the boat. We are barely learning how to spell Abu Dhabi. And we've been taken in by two older members of the church. We could have given them COVID. Okay, our our Alhosin is green. Calm down. We just did our PCR test. We are negative. But do you see, they are older gentlemen and an older lady and not fearful to show hospitality. Might it cost them? Yeah. Especially with a toddler and a four-month-old in the house who have a screaming match right around 11 p.m. That's when they decide, oh, I can scream louder than you. It's interrupted their lives, but they're still showing us hospitality. And maybe you can't show that kind of hospitality, but do you have water? We'd be happy to have it with you on the foyer. You have tea. Be happy to come to your home because the issue is not how lavish you are. Where there is love, there will be space. Where there is love, it is not about what you get. It's about enjoying each other. No one's asking for a five-course meal. But maybe now is the time where we need to override our fears and look for ways to show hospitality. Maybe now is the time we need to ask, who, who is the Lord nudging me to show honor to? Maybe it's someone who's never seen here. Someone who works so hard in a ministry and they're just invisible to the rest of us, but we know them. Maybe it's an elder, maybe it's a deacon, maybe it's just a random member. How can we show honor? How can I show honor? I don't have the answer to that, but I'm pretty sure if you and I get alone with the Lord for five minutes, he'll show us how to show honor to each other and zealously serve the Lord. Now, zeal is a weird thing because it's not constant. It waxes and wanes. But how do I keep my zeal to serve the Lord constant? 
by doing the things he has already commanded us to do for our good and his glory. It means attending church physically, Hebrews 10. It means coming to hear God's word sung so that I'm encouraged. God's word preached so that I'm edified. God's word read so that I'm challenged. God's word seen in baptism and the Lord's Supper so that I'm reminded that God is at work. It means I come to church. It means I go to my life groups. Now, that's not so much a command as it is a way of fulfilling a command. The same way quiet time is not a command, but it is a way of fulfilling the command to let Christ's word dwell in us richly. It means I get together with saints who I can pour my life to. I get together with saints who, when I am afflicted, they can bear my sorrows and pains with me. And maybe you're here and you are that afflicted saint. You have been called to bear a weighty cross of pain or loss. Please don't bear it alone. You have siblings in the faith who love you. Don't bear the pain of miscarriage alone. The pain of loneliness alone. The pain of inexplicable sorrow or loss of job or loss of health alone. There are people here who love you. If you give them half a chance, if I give half a chance, if we give each other half a chance to bear those burdens and pains. And when you rejoice, we will rejoice with you. And to help us be constant in prayer, we can attend prayer meetings. Because if you're like me, sometimes your morning prayers go like this. Father, Lord, I thank you for... Amen? Right? Yeah, I know you people are too spiritual for that to happen to you. This is, it just happens to me. That's fine. Right? We help each other pray. Because when I see other saints pray for me, I want to pray for them. Love in attitude is marked by intensity, affection, genuineness, abhorrence of evil, clinging to good. It presents itself out in actions. But maybe most interesting and possibly hardest of all, is we are called to love even our adversaries. Check out verse 14 of Romans 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now, we know the ultimate blesser is God. All blessings come from him. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. When scripture commands me to bless those who persecute me, which is akin to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and 6, when it commands me to bless my persecutors, it is telling me, pray for God to bless them. Let the ultimate blesser bless that guy who's persecuting me. When scripture says, even in the sight of our enemies, verse 17, we repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, even in the sight of my persecutors and enemies, I think what would be most honorable, not just to God, but to them, and scripture says, as far as it is within your power, live peaceably with all. That means a quiet life that is not looking for a fight. In fact, we are not looking for revenge. That's what scripture says, never avenge yourselves. It doesn't say occasionally avenge. It says never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. Why? Because retribution is practical atheism. Retribution means... I don't think there's anyone up here doing anything. If he's there and he's not doing anything, that means he's not there. So this guy up here, this God can't exist. So I'm going to, I'm going to revenge. I'm going to mete out retribution on my own because there's no one there to do it for me. 
God is saying the opposite. He's saying, no, I'm here. I will avenge. Whether in this life or the next, I will avenge. We trust him. And then most interesting of all, in verse 20, it says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, at first, when you read that, you think, yes, I'll still get them. I'll be nice to them so God can smash them. That's not what's going on here. <laughs> that is not what is going on here. What's going on here is the same thing Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and 6. If your enemy strikes you on your cheek, what do you do? Turn the other side. We don't treat them as their sins deserve because we have not been treated as our sins deserve. And maybe hardest of all, we are not to be overcome by evil, but we are to overcome evil with good. Put simply, we are not to be jaded. In a Genesis chapter 3 world, it is very easy to keep paying back. It is very easy that you hurt me, I'll hurt you twice as bad. Or you hurt me, fine, I'll just leave you and act like you're dead, like you don't exist. But God is saying our hearts should stay soft toward him, toward the church, and even toward our adversaries. So three quick questions as we close. Question number one, do you and I love the church. I'm not asking if we have warm, fuzzy feelings for the church. I'm asking, do we love the church? Question number two Do we love our enemies or adversaries? Now, if you have an enemy because you are mean and bad to them, you and I need to repent for that. But if you have an enemy because they hate that we are a Christian, they hate that we are a church, God commands us to love them. A dramatic example of this was seen in my country in the late 40s and early 50s when a freedom-fighting group called the Mau Mau were fighting for independence. But they were a brutal group. So one of the things they would do is kill collaborators. Without jury, without any evidence, if they decided you're a collaborator, they would kill you. And this one Mau Mau man killed a man in front of his wife and child and moved on with his life. And in a book called When God Moves in Revival, Festo Kivengere retells this story of this man who later came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and came to church. And the way revival meetings would work, church meetings at the time, someone would come up and say their sins. So he would come up and say, you know, I've, I've heard the gospel. I've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as my savior. I've turned away from my sin. But can God ever forgive me? for killing a man in front of his wife and his child? Can he ever forgive me? And he felt a hand on his shoulder saying, not only does God forgive you, I do too. That was his wife. She later took him back to their village, taught him a trade, hid him from the Mau Mau because now he was considered a collaborator and for years took care of him. What produces that if not the gospel? It is the gospel, the knowledge that Jesus Christ, in an act of supreme friendship toward his enemies, the very people putting him to death, the very sinners he should have judged, dies for them and says, I love even you. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, we are really glad you're here. Would you hear this? 
He died to turn you from being his enemy to his friend. And it is that kind of love that marks us. Sometimes you don't get us, that's good. Come to Christ and you'll not only get us, more importantly, you'll get him. The one who loves in his attitude, in his actions, and even his adversaries. And empowers us to do the same. Let's pray. Holy Father, I thank you for your word that is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Grant, O oh God, that everyone here would hear a better sermon than the one that was just preached. Do an eternal work in our hearts that we may love you and love each other with genuine, sincere, loving attitudes, with genuine and sincere actions of love, and help us love even our adversaries. In Jesus' name we pray.